Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. Uh, this is Adam Hardy and this is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. And uh, if you like this, then please don't forget, you can go to my website and find the link to Patreon to support me. On today's podcast, I have Remley Lingdo, who is a... Um, He's the founder and CEO of the Worldview Impact Foundation, which is a climate change and sustainable development organization. And uh, the, uh, you're on the Initiatives of Change in uh, Switzerland website, Bremley. That is a, a foundation which is essentially promoting you, okay? That's, or is that one that you actually work for as well? The, it's a, uh, well, the initiatives of change is actually a global movement of, you know, leaders like you and me who want to change the world. But like Mahatma Gandhi said, if you want to see the change of the world, you got to change yourself. Be the change you want to see in the world. So right, it's you. a global movement of individuals just like you and me. And it's been around since before the Second World War. Okay. It was started by a gentleman called Frank Bookman in the United States. And he was uh, all right. about moral rearmament, MRA. Okay. Good one. Let me finish off. Let me finish off the intro. Okay. So basically, you are a uh, a climate change and sustainable development professional, and you've got lots of experience working with governments and NGOs in the private sector, and you've worked all across. You've worked all across Asia and Africa, and even South America as well. And uh, one of the recent projects that you've been doing was in your in your home state, right? There's a, a farm that you set up. Or, or yes. you have uh, enlarged with yes. um, with uh, agroecology, uh, agroforestry, and, and um, re- regenerative farming. Mm-hmm. And now you, at the moment, you are based in. Um, oh, that is in. Okay, you're gonna have to tell me if I say this correctly. Meghalaya. Correct, Meghalaya. Just like Himalaya. In, yeah. in northeast in northeast india at the uh, foothills right. of the of the himalayas right. Right. and uh, that is the bit which always really intrigued me about india's geography because it sort of totally goes all the way around bangladesh correct it almost encompasses bangladesh but it doesn't quite reach the sea on the other side and then of course <laughs> there's myanmar and the himalayas to the yeah. north that must be uh must be a completely different place to uh completely different weather if you've got is it wet season dry season do you have seasons like that where you are it's uh we're having the retreating monsoons right now so it's still raining but i think it's going to stop just after the pujas are over when the, the hindu people celebrate their pujas in the last week of october and normally the rain stop just before that because they would then throw their gods and goddesses into the river so they, they need to have dry 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 season then yeah okay and how are you coping how is your region coping with COVID-19 are you in lockdown well uh, as you know uh, we've had lockdowns here the Prime Minister Modi enforced a lockdown in April Um, and India is a country of 1.3 billion so uh, the feasibility of having a national lockdown uh, has huge ramifications especially for people who are so poor who are living on a daily basis, daily rich workers, migrant workers. You must have seen in the news the exodus of them 
leaving the yeah. big cities and walking for miles to get back home for days with no food, no proper sanitation, no water. It's a nightmare scenario. And now India right. is number number two. So Trump and Modi are doing a good job. They've reached the finals. So let's see who wins. <laughs> it's really terrible, really speaking. But uh, right, it is. It's, uh, it's, I don't know so what's going to happen with India, but it's number two now. And I think it's soon going to be number one with a population of this size. We've got the second wave here in Europe. I think you only qualify for the second wave when you really clamp down hard with the lockdowns in the first wave. And so over the summer, yes. it died down and we, we managed to get rid of it to a large degree. But then it just came, it's just come straight back in the last couple of weeks. And we've got, we've had yes. uh, daily infection rates higher than ever. So um, yes. we're not too happy about that here either. But uh, let's not go into that. There's lots of other, loads of stuff on, on COVID-19 out there for people who are really interested in that stuff. I hope it hasn't affected you or your family at all. No, I'm, because I'm home, uh, you know, I, I told you, Adam, that I came here in March uh, 11th and I was going to set the ball rolling because we were going to ride our motorcycles with 10 international riders from the UK, from the US and Europe to go to Bhutan to the Tiger's Nest for right. a thousand miles and back to raise awareness on climate change and sustainable development and work with schools and farms along the way and just engage with policymakers along the 1,000 mile track and then raise money along the way. But, but when Buddha, Bhutan shut down its borders after one American tourist got infected, I had to abort mission. And I didn't know how long it was gonna last. So uh, my right. fellow riders also had to abort mission. But yeah. uh, thankfully no one in my family have been infected yet, but I've got friends and colleagues working the front lines who have got COVID-19 and um, battling it, yeah. Okay, that's tough. Yeah, that's tough. Sorry about that. Okay, so basically, when I when I first met you, we talked a lot about about Earth Bank and about the uh, the work with the mangroves and uh, the carbon sequestration that uh, mangroves can do. In fact, all, mm -hmm. obviously, all forests and all all farmlands, uh, soil essentially, can just take up so much carbon. So I wanted to I wanted to go straight into that a bit, and maybe you can uh, maybe you can say how EarthBank is doing because it's just launched. Was it a long time in the making before you got to that stage? Yeah. So basically, I met I was introduced to the founders of EarthBank, Tom Duncan and Chow Duncan uh, from Australia when I was uh, working in Myanmar. Um, uh, planting mangroves there uh, since I've been there working on the ground since 2012 when the Burmese government or the Myanmar government opened its uh, borders to the world and uh, we tested uh, a pilot project funded by a Latin foundation in Norway and we planted the first three million trees sapling and then now since we started in 2012 we've reached 17 million uh, with okay. return and, and new planting. So it's an epic scale project, but you know, Myanmar had suffered a major blow in 2008 when that hurricane cyclone Nargis struck them and they lost almost 150 to 200,000 people. And it's such an irony because the poor people were chopping off the mangroves because they were dependent on, on charcoal and forest firewood coming from mangroves but when a big storm hits them they have no defense to protect themselves from from nargis and 
then so they, the military government did not allow aid agencies to get it. They had uh, stripped the mangroves. They had involved. The mangroves yeah, they have cut been down devastated. All the mangroves and, okay. uh, yes, and that's where the restoration the delta, work is going on. So that's where we started in 2012, and now we've got 17 million uh, trees pr pr protected, as well as uh, new planting. And the goal is to do a billion. So I, I got in touch with Tom and Chow then, who were interested to see what was going on in Myanmar. It's been five years before the birth of Earth Bank, and they wanted to learn more engaged. And I finally met them both at the, at the Initiatives of Change in Switzerland in 2018 and 2019. And then we started talking about creating a, finance, a sustainable financing mechanism to scale up activities rather than just depending on grants and, you know, small, small, you know, support from different foundations here and there. We need to have like a big platform to really scale up to a billion trees or else we're never going to hit the target before it's too late. Pri so that's where Earth came in in 2018 and 19. And I'm supporting them in India with a pilot project that Earth Bank has executed in the Sundarbans. You know, the Sundarbans are the largest oh, yeah. mangrove forest in the planet. And it's uh, shared between India and Bangladesh. And a big cyclone hit us in May, Cyclone Ampan. Thankfully, the mangroves broke that Category 5 storm, and the, the, they, the, they were like a sponge, really. Broke it down to Category 3 and uh, mitigated the risk from huge destruction in both India and, and Bangladesh. So we've just started planting 30,000 trees, but the goal is to go up a million in, in the India side because they're quite degraded in Bangladeshi side. Right. Yeah, the Sundarbans is also famous for the tigers. The, uh, the yes, swamp tiger... tigers. They live there. They're amazing. Is that a stable population now? Because I know India has been, India has been. There uh, are uh, three hundred Royal Bengal tigers that have uh, basically adapted themselves to live on uh, on fish and other marine, um, you know life forms that exist in the Sundarbans, but they, they are there and every year 300 people die in the Sundarbans, both on the India side and the Bangladeshi side because they conflict between man and tiger. It's the most populated part of the world also, you know? So these 300. Guys go in, but 300 people die every year in the Sundarbans. In wow, that's Indian like Bangladesh. one for each tiger almost. Yes, one for each tiger. <laughs> so that's the man-eating tigers out there. But I don't blame those guys. It's their home. Huh? You go knocking around without warning, and obviously you're going to get bitten or eaten. You know, you're just like part of the supply chain, right? <laughs> Food chain, sorry. How, so, do you, how on earth do you manage to get local support when so many people are getting killed? Can you imagine in Europe? Well, they're very... Can you imagine in Europe, yeah, the wolves and bears, they just go out and shoot them. Even yeah. though bears are protected, so they, they right? There's shoot, one in Germany. You can't shoot tigers in India. It's against the law to kill tigers. You go to jail. So we have to create a buffer for reducing the conflict between man and tiger because uh, they are encroaching into tiger territory. It's supposed to be a national sanctuary. It was a national park. So people are going there to chop trees illegally so the tigers are the protectors and the caretakers of the forest they'll eat you because you're not supposed to cut trees and venture into their territory in the first place so i don't blame the tigers it's wow, men that's really harsh man who's at fault okay yeah definitely but people have still got to live right if that happened in yeah. britain or, or in germany in fact it did happen in germany that one of the bears from an, a national park in the alps i think it was in in poland or in czechoslovakia 
oh, sorry, the Czech Republic, one of the bears went roaming and came into Germany. And of course, you're not allowed to shoot bears in Germany. Even though there are no bears, you're still not allowed to shoot them because they're an endangered species. And so there was this massive, massive outcry. And the politicians just said, okay, we'll let you shoot this one because it's, it's a special case. And there was like, great, they all grabbed their guns and they went out hunting. And of course, within 24 <laughs> hours, it was dead. You know, there was, there was no way that, and that was because it was just there. It hadn't even killed anybody. Let, it hadn't even killed any sheep or any, any goats or anything, nothing. Yeah. It had done nothing. And- uh, Well, you can imagine back in the days uh, during the British empire, there were like 50,000 tigers roaming around in India and Bangladesh. And then, you know, we've got man-eating tigers. Then they had like a bounty for, you know, yeah. hunters like, uh, you know, we, we had Jim Corbett. That's why we have a, a, a Jim Corbett National Park here for tiger, tiger reserve also. So he shot a few of these tigers. Back then there were so many. Yeah. But now they are endangered species, so mm -hmm. they need to be protected. And there are seven subspecies of tigers, and I think three are gone, extinct anyway. So there's just yeah. a few left, like the Siberian, the Royal mm -hmm. Bengal, and a few other sadly. So what needs to happen is uh, livelihoods need to be created for these people living at risk in the Delta, not to chop down mangroves. They need to be paid to restore mangroves. That's why this is so yeah. much more important. We need to have rangers in the ground to be fully employed. So there's no trafficking of tigers. Some people also want to kill tigers to sell to the Chinese markets. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that's not good. So mm -hmm. they die because of that, because they're so poor. They try to risk their lives to get tiger parts and sell it for aphrodisia or whatever to China. And then they get killed. So, you know, we have to address the trafficking issue from the core of the markets for tiger parts, just like elephant tusk you know this is a huge issue yeah it does look like there's some small sort of acceptance now that maybe them maybe this med this chinese medicine that's based on animal parts isn't so real and the myth is slowly being is slowly being torn down in china and vietnam and all those places where they use these medicines so-called medicines yeah it's not good well, but to get back to EarthBank again, so you have you uh, you're starting to funnel private in, private funds through EarthBank to support the support planting in up India. of mangroves in in the Sundarbans in and India. in Bangladesh as well. Mm -hmm. Just started in India first uh, because they are more degraded than Bangladesh, and then hopefully we'll scale up to ten million, and then maybe move to Bangladesh also. But uh, what EarthBank has done is they've developed their own uh, matrix and um, with the partnership with the Euro European Space Agency, they can use uh, real-time satellite data to monitor the degradation of mangroves or the restoration of mangroves or how well it's working and also measure the carbon stocks from space with higher resolution satellite data and mm -hmm. also use drones. Uh, to monitor uh, real time from just two meters or 10 meters above the mangrove forest. So this is happening right now as we speak, even though it's COVID-19, uh, the local guys on the ground are busy mapping and planting um, in, in, in West Bengal, in the Sundarbans, yeah, okay. where, where the cyclone hit in May. So how does it work with the, uh, with the, sat the satellite imagery? Who, who actually does that? I can see that when you want to invest your money in in uh, 
something like Earthbank, you want to, mm -hmm. it's going to, uh, it's going to create mangroves. Mangroves are going to absorb tons of CO2. Yep. So how does that work? Do, do people then get, um, do the, do the investors then get certificates that they can use kind of carbon offsets or yes. carbon credits? Well, so basically it's, it's not meant for outside people. It's just meant for you and me. So for example, if you and me had a, a Revolut account, so imagine Revolut okay. becoming a green bank with its own projects around the world. That's what Earth Bank is all about. So, so let's say Adam and Bremley, we have a savings account in the UK linked to Earth Bank, 200 quid, okay? 200 pounds, me and you. Yeah. So what Earth Bank does, because we are the members of Earth Bank, we have a savings Earth Saver account. They would use my 200 quid and your 200 quid and invest in a microfinance institution in India that yeah. would normally borrow a 25% interest from Indian banks. They would use my money and your money to give you know 15% or 12% beat the, the interest rate in India. And then from the from the fifteen percent that the, the those microfinance uh, people, women yeah. and, and men who plant trees, who run business in India, we would get six percent for a return every year, and the Earth Bank would get like half half. And then the women also and the men also win because they don't have to borrow at twenty five percent, but at, at fifteen or, or less. So that's how our our Earth Saver individual account for individual members will grow because we get to do peer-to-peer -peer lending to real farmers in developing countries that need the money, can borrow at a cheaper rate. So we get to work our money from the bank to plant trees or you know, grow food or land restoration, regeneration or arts and crafts, handlooms, whatever so okay. they, they are working on. And then the return comes back to our savings account. That's how it works. Okay, so how does the so who does who does the who looks all of the satellite images and who go who goes out and uh, and says well look you know this is that was really good over there you've done some you've got some great that is being done by the team from Sweden them? yeah it's a thing because Earthbank is uh, based in Sweden it's uh, incubated with uh, Climate Cake there in Sweden and also the okay. European Space Agency uh, business team is working with the Swedish team. Uh, and the Danish team that are the GIS, the spatial types of experts based out of Sweden and Denmark. They do all the zooming from space. And then we've got the local teams working in, in India that uh, are on the ground doing the ground fruiting and supplying all the real-time data from the field every day. Okay, so do you have to enforce it? Do you have to, uh, have you had any cases yet where you had to go out and go, look, you know, you've You've got your you've got your loan, but but what are you doing with it? You've you've gone out and bought a car or something. What do you? How do well, you... basically, we have to work with an existing. Uh, we have to work with existing microfinance institution in India, which we yeah. do. So the the one that we work in India has 20, 25,000 men and women who are actually the the beneficiaries of our money, so to say, yeah. and. Uh, they are the ones planting the trees, but apart from just planting trees, they also got their own little, uh, you know, handloom, handicraft business or their little shops and, you know, whatever in the local villages. And they need this money to expand. And the microfinance institution in India is legally responsible to do all the follow up with them. What Earth Bank does is pro provides the platform for them to do digital banking on, on their phones or, or apps or whatever they have. And it gives that platform also to the microfinance institution in India so they can manage all their borrowers properly. 
Right. They can see everything online um, yeah. on their phones. And then we give them the money to, to the microfinance institution that's been running for the last 30 years. So they have a track record of, of who borrows and who pays back. Mostly women always pay back. So it's mm -hmm. a good, good track record. So we don't deal with the operations on the ground. The local partners do everything. Excellent. That sounds really good. I'm, it's really yeah. impressive. And, yeah. So do you do you see uh, do you see lots of problems with uh, I mean Bangladesh? Okay, you haven't quite started in Bangladesh yet, but it sounds Not like there yet. sounds like a disaster area with with all of this with the yes. environmental problems. Weren't they? They were totally flooded. I think the Bangladeshi Prime Minister said that her country was a half of it was underwater for the last six weeks. Yes, correct, correct. Does that wipe out a lot of but, what you uh, do? I mentioned to you, Adam. A bigger pardon. I was just saying, does that wipe out? Does that wipe just totally wipe people out? People. Uh, You've uh, you've got people on the uh, in this microfinance initiative, and and they're running their small holdings and their farm, and they're planting up trees and stuff, and then they have to leave. They just have. How can you survive there when you're underwater for um, six weeks or whatever it was? Yeah, in, in they, in about ten years' time, sea level will rise, whether we like it or not. So mangroves are the only defense and the only way to slow down the rise and protect people from from tides coming in, from storms, from hurricanes, from floods. So if we want to save lives, mangroves are the best strategy right now for both India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, all the low-lying areas where mangroves have been degraded. But at the same time, Adam, you know, since I got here, I was gonna go to Bhutan. So I've been yeah. working at also a highland ecosystem to prevent huge topsoil runoff and flash floods from the mountains when it rains so much. As I right. told you in Assam, we lost like 300 people this uh, this monsoon season because of flash floods. That's just getting worse every year. But the main contributor is uh, silt um, deposits in the Brahmaputra Valley and, and the river. It's lifted the riverbed by one to two meters. So you can imagine the water would burst out of the banks and flood everything. And in That's doing so, uh, all the wildlife, uh, Royal Bengal tigers, elephants, rhinos, deer, they all drown and we lose so much every year. Uh, let alone and all of the fatty fields get contaminated and people get carried away and washed out. So what we're doing with Earth Bank is also restore um, uh, highland cloud forests in the Himalayan foothills to prevent uh, topsoil runoff and, and create some sign of uh, rainwater retention in the highlands to reduce the speed of the flood waters going down and, and flooding everything downstream. So it's just important to do this also in the mountains because as you know, the glaciers are melting at a rapid speed and the Himalayas right. are the third largest concentration of fresh water on the planet after yeah. the Arctic and the Antarctic. But not much is being talked about it. But if, 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 the, if Everest or the entire Himalayas were to dry up, India and Bangladesh and Pakistan with two billion people, you know, will suffer the most. It'd be like a desert, really. So we need to also work in the highlands and that's what we're doing right now. Right, that's uh, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. That's quite a comprehensive sort of integrated uh, approach. That's that's really yeah, good. source to sea. Yeah, source to sea, okay. from the Himalayas to the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Uh huh. The um. Uh, 
I wonder if it'd be a good point to start talking about the stuff that I've been looking at with this, with the idea of a carbon currency backed by carbon rationing, where you you take a country, for instance, uh, anywhere, um, anywhere maybe, but um, you give every citizen their carbon rations and you use that as a currency and denominate it in kilos and grams of, of carbon. And you make the whole supply chain all the way down from the consumers, from the citizens who've got their, who've got their carbon rations. You make the whole supply chain deal with that currency so that nobody can sell anything without having uh, without a demanding currency for it, without demanding carbon currency for it alongside the normal currency. And that goes back to the, uh, to the fossil fuel suppliers who have to collect the carbon rations as proof of what they've, as, as proof that they are, um, that's the license that they have for digging this stuff or pumping this stuff out of the ground. So you know immediately from the start, whatever rations you give out, and that is the limit of the amount that can be pumped out of the ground by the fossil fuels, fossil fuel companies. Now, where that, where that comes in uh, to your story is that if there's a central bank giving out carbon rations to people, then essentially you are controlling the, the CO2, the CO2 uh, emissions completely. And what you can also do is let people earn those rations, earn those, the, that carbon currency, if they can prove that they are sequestering the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So if you, if you plant a bunch of mangroves and you've proved with your satellite imagery that you have got, uh, that you've sequestered a hundred tons of CO2, then you can go to the, you can go to the central carbon bank and say, okay, I'll have my carbon rations. And then because there'll be, uh, because people will be able to have, do personal carbon trading to, if they, uh, for whatever reason, if they're just rich and they just have their lifestyle or if they just, for whatever reason, need more carbon rations, then they have to buy them. And people have to sell them to, for them to be able to buy them. So there'll be supply and demand there. And uh, obviously if the supply of rations goes down, because we're trying to reduce the amount of fossil fuels that are pumped out of the ground, then the price of the carbon, the carbon currency will go up. And that means that if your, if your people are planting mangroves and doing lots of CO2 sequestration and earning these rations from the central carbon bank, then that is, to me, that is a much better way of of funding the whole thing because you have a direct line between the CO2 emissions and the people who are actually getting the, who are actually doing the work on the ground, planting the mangroves or whatever it is, doing farming that, that uh, regenerative farming that builds up the CO2 in the soil or whatever. And um, that would make a much, much more robust, um, I think much more credible uh, investment strategy not investment strategy but but a whole a whole economy much more credible economy than the whole of the offsetting business that we have at the moment and the whole of the uh a lot of stuff like earth bank what earth bank is doing is relying on people's uh on people going oh hell the, the, the climate's going 
the climate's going to hell. We've got to do something about this. I'm going to invest. I'm going to invest my money with Earth Bank. So you're just relying on people, on people's goodwill essentially. And uh, with carbon credits and carbon offsetting, there's just all sorts of things going on that you you can't really tell whether the offsetting is really is really valid. And so this make, this whole this whole concept makes it a much more robust <clears throat> and uh, traceable approach to the to the uh, carbon sequestration and the carbon capture that we're going to have to do if we if we don't want if we want to keep below two degrees c global warming let alone 1.5 degrees c that's in the paris agreement so have you thought that while i was telling you that did you think um you can see how a national framework like that would fit in with what earth bank is doing would you, you know what, Adam? I'm actually trying. I, I totally agree with you. And I've been trying to push the government of India to integrate national capital accounting into the measurement of the GDP. You know, as I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation, I, I studied at Columbia and I took classes from um, Joseph Stiglitz, who was a chief economist of the World Bank and also got a Nobel Prize in economics. You know, he said, right. Guys, the way the world has been measuring GDP is completely flawed and wrong because they never accounted for natural capital, human capital, intellectual capital, social capital, nothing. It's all based on pure exponential growth and oil and ripping off the planet. And they don't account for this. So imagine in India, if we have a market with the Reserve Bank of India where yeah. we have we go beyond carbon and look at nature-based solutions and natural capital accounting. So Maharashtra, which is the biggest state with all the biggest industry, chopped off all its forests, huge population, huge right. ecological footprint, then they would pay my state, Meghalaya, which right. is, still has sand forest, lesser population, a beautiful scenery and a lush green forest with waterfalls and all organic farms. Uh -huh. But people are poor. So a, a state in, within India, 29 states, they can trade their their the national capital assets you know maharashtra has less it's destroyed but it's very rich it's heavily industrialized polluting right. a lot chopping off mangrove they can pay a smaller state within the union say hey guys please protect your forest and your aquifers because we need you your value is like a billion dollars and we have destroyed a billion dollars worth of ecosystem services we'll pay you a billion dollars to maintain your forest and green jobs for your young people create the organic food for our farmers because we have contaminated our soil with chemicals and pesticides and we're all getting cancer and the public cost, public health cost is like another billion. So you grow your organic food, we'll buy it from you. I will invest in your state to, to protect your forest because your ecosystem services are worth like a billion a year or something like that. So if this happens at a national level with this kind of framework uh, right. under the Reserve Bank of India, it would work. You know, uh -huh. in a big country like India, then the United States can do that. The European Union can do that uh, in this post-COVID-19 recovery that we're talking about. So I think we need yeah. to move beyond carbon and look at total ecosystem functionalities and measure everything in a matrix. For example, one hectare of mangroves in Myanmar, we yeah. plant 2,500 trees, right? The total economic benefits of one hectare of mangroves, which means 2,500 trees, is $200,000 per hectare per year. That equates to $100 per tree per year of total benefits. 
And carbon is minuscule. Right. It's part of it, but it's minuscule. It's all about oxygen production, uh, water vapor production, uh, regulation of the tide, uh, flood right. defense from storms and hurricanes, uh, fish stock re rejuvenating the fish yield to 50%, uh -huh. medicinal herbs and plants, uh, ecological social tourism, uh, and many more. You add that up, it's 200 grand a year per hectare. Right. It's like $100 per tree per year. You know, it's like a lot. So how do we account for that? So we need to exactly. put that into the national budget of a country and then states that pollute need to pay to restore. So we need to move way beyond carbon. It's too cheap to just talk about carbon. Yeah, I yeah. Think. So we need to look, put a value of the entire functional ecosystem and the entire life supporting ecosystem. And the people who maintain the integrity of those ecosystems, they need to be paid. Exactly what you said. I think you're, I think you're, completely right that we do need to move beyond carbon because we've got to have a completely circular economy and that is including well donut economics that includes all of the ecological services but right now in this emergency in the situation where we've got we've got such little time to wind down the fossil fuel industry and completely replace it that is the reason why i'm going that's why i'm saying carbon currency it's got to be carbon because people know that there's climate change. Nobody really significantly says, no, there's not climate change anymore, apart from one guy in the White House, but hopefully he won't be there much longer. But essentially, if we go for, the, if we go for a carbon currency, then that brings a robustness to the whole system. And it, it, imposes, it imposes a framework. What I'm afraid of is that, well, we've been saying these things about ecosystem services for a long, long time. And it just gets ignored completely by the uh, by political leaders and um, in society. And what happens is that uh, even if you had some political leaders who go in there and they put some good policies in place, they're not necessarily going to stay there with a the change of government. This new government's going to come in and look what Trump did. He just unwound all of uh, a lot of the legislation that Obama put in. Now, I think so what can happen with a carbon currency is that finally, finally, you have then broken the stranglehold that, that, that capitalism has over the economy because you have then put a second currency in place, which is controlled by society. At the moment, you have you have money and money in most cases is controlled by the free market of people buying and selling and it goes up or down or whatever. And sometimes the government will step in and go, hey, hey, you're not allowed to do that. You know, that's a monopoly. We're not having that because that's bad for society. Now, in how many years, how many decades, centuries have we had money for? And we've only just got, we've only just got this, this rather weak level of legislation that's stopping the abuse of the, the abuse of, um, of all of the environmental and ecological services and the tragedy of the commons, everything that is not nailed down, everything that has not got a price on its head is just totally abused. So the carbon currency, well, looks at the future, assuming you impose a carbon currency and we get to the point where we see, okay, the, the job is being taken care of now, we are winding down fossil fuels. And my theory is, is that you can start using the carbon currency to start denominating other things in in uh, other ecological services. I mean, like yes, 
I agree. I don't know how that would work, and I have, and, and that's really that's really blue sky thinking. But that yeah. is what I say when people say, "No, you've got to look beyond carbon." But basically, the reason why you want to concentrate on carbon is because the climate change crisis is something that is in everybody's faces right now. Right and now. as soon yeah, as we people know, as soon as we've got, people as soon know. as we've got that, and we're dealing with it, then we can start going. Okay, now. What about all of the uh, all of the other things? I what agree. about what about the, all all the services? Correct, yeah. because there's no other market. There's no oxygen market. Well, there is oxygen market. We buy it in tanks. We go down. <laughs> people take oxygen when they get COVID, and people drink water and they buy water. But there's no true global market like we're talking like a carbon market where you do offsets and all that. So I totally agree with you. We need one step at a time. Yeah make the system work and then we can add on all the other services and like top up you know yeah. top up but like i told you earlier adam we need to pick one country one country the highest yeah. risk on the planet from climate change and get them to adopt what we've just said remember like you know like right. mauritius or something or tuvalu or small island where it's easier to work with or somewhere in the caribbean that are like sinking off and then execute this make it work uh test a model and then get other, you know, like the CARICOM, the whole Caribbean islands come together and they like shouting, you know, nobody okay. cares about us, other Pacific Islanders. You target them and it's a no brainer for them. If it works for them in that small island, because you know, yeah. they have to buy uh, insurance from big companies to insure their themselves. Oh my God, it's crazy. First really? of all, they never committed that crime. Second of all, they're paying for everything and they are the highest risk and they're paying the biggest price for Big guys like China and the United States and Europe polluting far away, and these guys in the little islands are drowning, and they yeah. have to pay like huge costs to pay for their insurances. So maybe we can approach them, their ministers or their heads of states and government, and say, "Hey guys, we yeah. want to help you out. Can we prototype this um, model that we are working on, and you lead it and expand across the islands?" And then they put pressure on the bigger fish, and they. Uh, move right. from there but it has to be a people's movement like a bottom-up you know absolutely yeah i'm setting up a group in north london to approach this i'm talking to a lot of people who live around here who are involved with all sorts of things to do their quality and climate change and the council and uh, i as adam that reach out to the high commissioners of caricom or the uh, Korean islands or even the Pacific Islanders, they're all there in London. They're sitting in their embassies or their high commission. Why don't you reach out to them and say, hey, guys, uh, all the Commonwealth uh, countries to start with in the Commonwealth, you know, because it'd be good to reach out to the Commonwealth Secretariat. They've got their climate team and they're sitting uh -huh. there and then approach them. I can link you up with them and then say, can we test with a few little small island states, small island developing states, and we move forward, just go and... Uh, chat with the high commissioners and present your model and okay. say we're doing it in north london maybe we can we can twin north london with uh, with uh, you know trinidad tobago or jamaica I, or something like that oh they'd love that they'd love that definitely. yeah why not or just talk to the jamaicans in london all of them i don't know maybe they want to do something for their motherland that's a fantastic <laughs> idea you know all, all the, the, the diaspora from all the Caribbean islands, there's all these young people living in London uh -huh. who want to give back to their homes. They want to engage, you know, because they all send remittance back home. Whatever money they earn from living in Europe, in the US, in the UK, they send money home to help their farms. So maybe they yeah. want to do more. You know? That's right. I'm sure they would. I've got to, uh, 
it's, it's the it's the young kids as well that I've got to talk to. Um, it's the youth exactly, but all those yeah. young people and students from the Caribbean in UK universities right now in lockdown and worried about their future and their homes, maybe you can test the water with them, you know, because they belong somewhere. It's that sense of belonging to belonging to an island that's sinking. What do you want to do for your future? What's right. your stake? You know, that 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 right. call to action has to be, has to come out, and then they take responsibility and take ownership of the process. And before, lo and behold, before you know it, it just sets out like fire. It spreads all across the Caribbean because they love it. So you make them own it, and you give them like an assignment, like a like uh -huh. a mission to do it for their islands. You know. Good plan. I like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go start right away. <laughs> Okay, um, you mentioned actually before that you um, that you were involved with you're getting involved with some nuclear stuff, with some is it protests or or, or are you doing a? Uh, I read uh, the, I read an article you sent about uh, in yeah. Megalaya State where they've got some they've had some old uranium mines and there's some big problems with the old with yes. the old uh, the the residue from the mm -hmm. mines. What have, what have you yes. been doing there? So basically this uh, uranium mining saga goes back to the 1950s when Meghalaya wasn't even around. It was you know, just after India's independence and so on and so forth. The Atomic Minerals Division Rectorate of India was hovering around in the neck of the woods during the Assam days. You know, we were part of the big state of Assam where you drink Lipton tea and you know, all comes from Assam's the biggest okay. tea gardens on the yeah. planet here. Right. And we got our hill state <clears throat> which my father was involved in this hill state movement to separate the hill people from the plains of Assam in the 60s. And we finally got our hill state in 1972 after having an autonomous state from 1970 to 72. But then they started mining, even during the Assam days, they were excavating, finding stuff. And they started mining operations in the early 70s, 80s and 90s, the Atomic Minerals Division. And they found high grade uranium here and as you know, India tested its first nuclear weapon in 1974 during the prime ministership of Indira Gandhi. It's quite an irony, the land of Gandhi, the land of non-violent <laughs> weapons of mass destruction. And now even Pakistan has them and so on and yeah. so forth. But it's like this new arms race going on, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, India has got a nuclear program for generating nuclear energy and it's signed bilateral agreements for nuclear yeah. fuel from the United States and Canada and maybe Australia will do too. Okay. But uh, India also has got a military program, so no way the United States or Canada or Australia is going to send uranium fuel to India's military reactors, you know, for plutonium okay. enrichment, for weapons. So where else is the uranium going to come from? It has to be from domestic sources, right? And we have high grade here. So this is this classic avatar story, if you remember, the Navi people, those blue guys, and we are yeah. the Kasi people. And they were looking for unobtainium in the planet Pandora. So we are like classic Pandora here and we have uranium. Yeah. So obviously those guys have mined uranium, experimental mining back in the 80s and 90s. And then uh -huh. my grand uncle who was the chief minister then of my state shut down the mine, said like, this is not working guys. It's contaminating okay. our ecosystems, our water, our air. We need to shut it down. So yeah. he just asked the Atomic Minerals Division to shut it down and then they left, but they just dumped everything, all the radioactive stuff lying around with all their gear. And he asked them to up. come back and then these big concrete tanks were built in the 1990s 
yeah. with all this uranium ore and the decay that was dug out of the earth in the 80s was locked down in these concrete tanks built in the late 90s to seal everything. And obviously, you know, with the wear and tear over 30 years, these tanks have started to crack. Some of them have got holes and there's leakage going on straight into our rivers and waters and air and the villages around that area that are uh, having kids with deformities and people dying of cancer and fish and die, fish dying in the rivers and livestock yeah. dying and everything. So I've been documenting this for the last you know, 30 odd years because I care about these issues right. because I was doing research on forest there and I found this out and now they're leaking. So I'm actually going back there tomorrow to go and yeah. check on them and I'll report back to you and what I find out. Ah, that's that's a nightmare. There can't be. It is. What's the chance of getting the government to actually spend a lot of money on sorting it out? Because it will take a lot of money to sort something like that out. Well, the government is in denial, Adam, to be frank with you. They said everything is OK. It's all right. They sent their people there. But I don't think they went deep enough into the forest because everything is covered with bush right now. And okay. there's lots of erosion going on. We have the highest rainfall on the planet in my part of the world. 50 feet, 25 meters a year of torrential rain for six months. And nothing's going to stand against wow. that, right? No. And there's erosion going on and there's wind. So no concrete is going to hold that long. So they need to be sealed. They need to be taken care of. And uh, yeah. radioactive uh, materials need to be properly guarded and taken care of. And also radiation needs to be monitored with some Geiger counter provided for the community so they don't go venturing around there because they don't know. They are just you know, uneducated farmers. And I fear that they're being contaminated and they're slowly dying of cancer and their population are getting infected and they are having all these uh, deformities into their into their households and families. It's totally uh, unfair. Yeah. No, that's really, that's really tough. That's really bad news. Yeah. And there's also radon gas coming out from those uh, yeah. ventilating pipes from each dam because every dam has got to have pipes for right. all that decaying uranium stuff coming out and if you seal it they'll blow up right so all that radon okay. gas also gets its light it gets scared away in the wind and whoever inhales those particles will have lung cancer over time well i hope you get somewhere with it hope it's slowly, slowly yes i'm working on it Adam. i'm working on it <laughs> okay good luck with that good luck with that it's terrible okay well that's great uh to um to be able to discuss all this different stuff with you I think yes, you know, Adam, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of clean energy. I'm not talking about big dams everywhere, like the Three Gorges Dam flooding so much land and creating earthquakes and, um, you know, <clears throat> taking over land of poor farmers. I'm talking about decentralized grids, you know, right. uh, wind, solar, micro hydro, where we can train young people living in those communities to be renewable energy entrepreneurs, powering their own communities, literally, power right. the people. Why not? Nice Why do we have to go to central grid and build nuclear plants everywhere and be easy targets of terrorists and whatnot and mine uranium, whether it's for military or civilian purpose? We, we need to switch to more clean, renewable energies beyond right. oil, beyond coal. And we can do these from micro hydro without disturbing the flow of the waterfalls right. from uh, a lot of waste from, um, you know, okay. uh, that's created biological waste from the sun and from the wind and also from uh, the waves. You know, and also right. we've got lots of hot springs where we can tap the geysers and create geothermal energy. 
and really create green yeah. jobs for local communities, local heroes on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like with 25 meters of rain every year, then there must be, the, the potential for micro hydro must be huge. <laughs> yes, thundering waterfalls everywhere. Huge, <laughs> a billion liters of water is going down the drain to Bangladesh and Assam. You know, uh, the rest of India is like uh, running out of water. Yeah. I'd love to be and able got, to visit, love to yeah, be able to visit there one day. David, yeah? David Attenborough just did a story on our living wood bridges because our ancestors, you know, thousands of years ago, were building these uh, ancient living root bridges that are still growing. And I oh. still have uh, our ancient sacred forest, which is more than a thousand years old and is still growing. You must okay. come and see how we need to restore and protect our ecosystems because our ancestors did that. And they have monolithic cultures. So we have got monoliths everywhere, just like, uh, you know, in Stonehenge. Uh -huh. We've got our own miniature virgin here. And we're the only tribe in this part of the world that still have monolith cultures and still put those big stones around. All right, so okay. we still have the ancient ways of, of, of the ancestors and we need to maintain that. I've seen those living rope, uh, living root bridges. They Correct. look like something yeah. out of a fantasy fantasy film. Avatar, um, again, yeah. like Avatar, Pandora. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's brilliant. And you've got the, the Himalayas uh, just are they, um, you can, can you we, see? We are on the foothills. We are on the foothills. Okay. And then we've got the, we've got the Brahmaputra Valley that I talked to you about with the big Brahmaputra rivers flowing from uh, the Chinese border and, and the Tibet. And then the, and then the Himalayas go up through Bhutan and upper Assam and Northeast India, they go way up. Right. Like a, like a shield. This is, sounds like a paradise though. And we've got a lot of work to do to make sure we don't lose it. Yes, is, really I hope you can come here and we can work together and test and prototype your model, you know, it's really fun. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Okay, Bramley, thank and you very much. Work, work with all our farmers to produce all this organic regenerated food that we're all talking about and restore soil so that they start sequestering carbon again. You know, it's not just forests, but also soils. Right. Like what uh, the people at uh, Kiss the Ground have been promoting through their film and Regeneration International, you know, yeah, for 1000. Slowly oh, coming, oh, oh. slowly coming out into the into the uh, into public yeah. public knowledge that so the soil we shift is so our economies from extractive extractive economies to regenerative economies. You know, as part of the green recovery, that's the only way, only hope, Adam. That's right. Okay, we need Brandon. to change our food system. We need to change our food systems. We do, we do definitely in the UK as well, everywhere. Yes, we need rewilding in the UK too to prevent floods. You know, we're having floods a lot. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, Bradley, thank you very much. And um, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for being on here. And yeah. uh, good luck with all of the things that you're doing. And um, yeah. hope to hear about Earth Bank soon as well. Okay. Yeah. May, the, may the forest of the tide be with you always. <laughs> you know what I'm referring to, the forest of the tide, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. And with you, bye. Thank you very bye. much. My name is Adam Hardy and this is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you'll tune into the next one.